Welcome to this episode of the Middle Market Growth Conversations podcast. I'm Katie Mulligan, Editor-in-Chief of ACG's magazine, Middle Market Growth. Today's episode is one I recorded on the sidelines of ACG's Intergrowth Conference in Orlando. The interview features Whit Matthews, Senior Investment Director at Aberdeen Standard Investments, who sat down with me to talk about what his firm looks for when selecting GPs to work with and some of the common mistakes that he sees private equity firms make during succession planning. He also commented on some of the fundraising and investing trends he's watching and how he expects a future economic downturn to impact LPs in co-investment activity. We taped this in a booth right on the conference floor, so at some points in the conversation, you'll hear Intergrowth attendees networking in the background. With that, here's my conversation with Whit Matthews. Whit, thanks for joining me. Thanks, Katie. Can you give a brief overview of Aberdeen and your role there? Yeah, certainly. Thanks for having me. Um, Aberdeen Standard Investments is a global asset management firm investing across all asset classes across most every geography that you can imagine. We're listed on the London Stock Exchange, and today we have roughly $650 billion of assets under management. Our private markets business encompasses a variety of strategies, including private equity, venture capital, real assets, and infrastructure, as well as some niche strategies such as private credit and GP equity stakes. Uh, As you mentioned, I'm a senior investment director in our U.S. private equity business, so I'm part of a 12-person team. We're all based up in Boston, Massachusetts, and we're focused broadly on the U.S. lower middle market. Uh, We invest in this market through primary fund commitments, co-investments, and secondaries. And importantly, and maybe something unique about our program, is we do a lot with emerging managers, first-time institutional funds, and independent sponsors in the U.S. and Canada. And when you're evaluating a a private equity firm, what are some of the key criteria that you look for? First and foremost, there's no single answer to the must-have criteria of a GP that ultimately makes it into our portfolio at Aberdeen Standard. There are 200 plus funds that are closing each year in the U.S. in our market, and we're only doing somewhere from six to 10 of those fund commitments each year. So the bar to get into the portfolio is incredibly high, and undoubtedly, we are passing on many opportunities that do indeed meet a number of the criteria that we look for for the funds that we allocate to. So that said, what do we look for? First and foremost is team and team dynamic. These are hugely important to us. We're committing to these funds for 10 plus years, and we're looking for a strong working relationship amongst the team themselves, and also a transparent and honest approach to the relationship with us as LPs. More specifically, when thinking about team, we want to see that they've worked together for a long time, and we want to see skill sets of the partners that complement one another well. And if there's been departures at the mid or senior level, we really want to dig into what drove those departures and understand that dynamic. From the strategy side of things, every firm that's out there has to have a reason to exist. There has to be something that makes them special. Often this is expertise in a particular sector, such as tech or healthcare, And sometimes this is a unique focus on a particular region of the North American market. A third differentiator could be a particular style of investing, such as distressed investing or special situations investing, where the skill sets needed to navigate those deal dynamics are very nuanced. Track record is obviously something everyone looks at and likely the first page that most LPs turn to uh, in a pitch book. While we are fans of a deep and strong track record with a history of putting points on the board, It's only part of what we look for in the groups that we invest with. So to this end, a lot of the track record and deal-related diligence we do is at the specific portfolio company level. We want to understand the levers a GP has been able to pull to drive growth on both a top and bottom line basis. 
Given the unrealized nature of many of these investments, it's important to understand how they are performed and what is driving valuation. And lastly, we believe it's important to understand the long-term growth plans for the firm. Are they committed to the lower middle market? How do they plan to build out the team in the future? And how might future fund sizes be increased? And you mentioned that you like working with emerging managers. So uh, what should new funds be thinking about as they're coming to market? So certainly everything that I just mentioned is important for any fund coming to market. Every LP is going to want to understand those dynamics. The team and the plans for team growth are hugely important for emerging managers. From our perspective, it's really hard to get excited about the proverbial guy and a dog, the one-man shop. We look for teams that have a history of working together and who are hungry and excited to build something for the long term. We talked about track record before, but what goes hand in glove with this is deal flow. You need to be able to show an ability to drive deal flow and get deals done. Filling up the top of the funnel and driving deals to completion is the lifeblood of any private equity firm that we work with. Also, GPs need to know that it won't be easy, especially first-time managers and emerging managers. The fundraising timeline for these types of managers is often much longer than most groups expect. While some groups may get in and out of the market in four to six months, there are many more first-time funds that take 12 to 18 months or more to ultimately reach their fund size target, let alone their hard cap. Remember, building a firm is a much different endeavor than making investments. All the individuals that we meet are, for the most part, good if not great investors. However, this does not always correlate to being a strong manager of people and or portfolios, and that's the work that we're doing as we underwrite GPs every day. LPs will be acutely focused on all of the items we just discussed above when evaluating newly formed groups coming to market. And you mentioned, too, um, that you work with independent sponsors. Can you talk about what that relationship looks like? Yeah, so independent sponsors, there, there's all different types of relationships we'll have with that group. For some folks, we're, we're, we're evaluating them as they think about raising a fund uh, at some point in the future. Uh, there's lots of independent sponsors who are very happy remaining independent sponsors. Uh, and for us, that's a great source of, of co-investment deal flow. Um, so our relationships with independent sponsors are, are very wide and, and, and very varied, and that's just a function of there being a lot of different types of independent sponsors out there. But for us, it's, it's, it's a part of the world that we really do spend a disproportionate amount of time, effort, and energy on in terms of just mapping that part of the world and making sure we're seeing everything that's going on. I want to ask you, too, about succession planning, because that's something that we hear a lot about in terms of the middle market. And I think, you know, certainly PE firms are thinking about how they can have a seamless transition of leadership as their founders retire. But I think many are also very conscious of how their limited partners are going to view that. So curious, what types of questions about succession planning are you asking LPs? Yeah, so, so there's definitely some questions we ask. And I think, first off, a succession is something that is really, really tough to do well. And there's not a lot of examples out there of firms that have done it well without a few hiccups. Mm-hmm. Um, most groups tend to raise ever larger funds, creating more capital to go around or fees to go around for everyone at the table. But in our opinion, this moves them out of the core markets on which their track records have historically been built. Huh. But the biggest mistake that we see in terms of, of uh, missteps with succession uh, is really around an unwillingness to share economics more broadly over time. As a firm evolves, its next generation of leaders and investment professionals uh, really need to be compensated appropriately. And if they aren't, they're most likely to leave. Mm -hmm. So unsurprisingly, we believe that these two items, uh, groups moving up market or groups having trouble raising raising carry and raising economics the way they should, uh, is really what's driving that independent sponsor phenomenon that we talked about just a minute ago. 
And you mentioned a couple mistakes. Are there any other mistakes that you commonly see firms making? No, those are those are the biggest ones. I mean, I think I think sharing the economics is is is, is really tough, and, and and maybe what what goes with that is is making sure that the senior partners that do remain in place um, are the senior partners that are adding value mm-hmm. um, over time. And and so it's easy to think of succession planning as just the old guard moving out and the, and, the, and the new guard um, moving in. And I think the reality is um, the toughest decision groups have to make is kind of looking at the folks around the table. And, and, and as they go into each fund, making sure the folks that are sitting in those seats are the, are the individuals that truly not only have added value historically, but are going to add value on a go-forward basis for, for the fund that's being raised in the, in the current cycle. Mm-hmm. So switching gears a little bit, I'm curious what you're seeing in the market more broadly. Are there any notable trends that you're watching related to fundraising or the deal environment more generally? Yeah, sure. So, so certainly lots to unpack there, and I'll touch on a couple things and, and, and feel free to dig deeper. Um, Things are frothy and it and it feels toppy and it's felt that way for for a long long time. So you know if we called the top of the market three to five years ago, we, we would have just been flat out wrong. But we would have felt like we were making the, the right decision um, at that time. On the fundraising front, um, I think the data shows that 2018 was down a little bit from from 2019 in terms of the dollars raised. Um, but the number of successful funds being raised by just count uh, continues to be just north of that kind of 200 to 250 ish number that I mentioned before in terms of funds that are ultimately closing. And we're thinking about the broad lower mid-market and mid-market when I describe um, those numbers. Um, you know, all that said, I think if you think about the whole market more broadly, uh, despite the numbers being down, I think the anecdotal data would show you there's a couple of really large mega funds that were raised in 2017. We didn't see as many of those uh, in 2018. Uh, and I think I saw a stat recently that in 2019, there's already six $10 billion plus funds out there. So um, it, w- it would stand to reason that 2019 uh, is on track for another you know, quite successful fundraising uh, number, just in terms of uh, in terms of dollars uh, raised. So from our perspective, as a group focused on the, on the smaller end of the world, the trend that continues uh, regardless of, of how much capital being raised is that the majority of capital is going to, to the, the largest funds out there. And obviously, um, that's not an especially insightful insight. Um, but you know, I think the data point that we saw was that in 2018, somewhere between 40 and 50% of the capital raised went to the 10 largest funds uh, raised in the market. Our analysis shows that somewhere between 80 and 85% of the total capital raised each year is going to fund size greater than a billion dollars. And interestingly, we also see that roughly 80 to 85% of the deal flow is coming from the much smaller end of the market, right? So the sheer end of deals getting done uh, is just much, much larger at the smaller end of the market, despite much, much more capital being focused on the larger end of the world. So for investors that want lower middle market exposure or middle market exposure, there's just a lot of managers and opportunities to sift through. On the deal front, you know, purchase prices continue to kind of tick up year after year. Uh, at the large cap end of the world, purchase prices right now are averaging just north of 12 times, I believe, and, and leverage levels are kind of in the six to seven times range. In the lower middle market, we're seeing a relative discount to uh, to where things are trading at the large cap end of things. So, so anywhere from kind of two and a half to three times um, feels like the right kind of median purchase price at the smaller end of the world. But still, at nine times, despite the relative discount to the larger end of the world, that, that's definitely a tick up from what we what we would have been looking at kind of six to seven times, uh, you know, anywhere in that three to five year um, ago period. So. I think what we have to take from all of that is, is you know, no matter where you're investing in the market, you know, it feels like things are, are pretty fully priced right now, and we're certainly at a premium to where we were in the past. Mm-hmm. And is a lot of the activity on the smaller end of the market, is that coming in the form of add-on acquisitions? So I don't have that data right in front of me. I, mean, I think um, anecdotally, 
Um, many of the, the best and most successful managers that we see in back are very active on the, uh, on the add-on front. So, you know, what we, what we do often see is managers that are buying a portfolio um, of sufficient scale at that, you know, full price multiple that I alluded to. So let's call it, you know, eight to nine times. Um, but they're able to buy down that multiple through add-ons of, of kind of more micro cap oriented businesses uh, and do that in that kind of five to six times range that we were used to kind of seeing in the past. And so that blends down that purchase price multiple uh, over time. One thing that we're seeing too is more and more middle market PE funds that are offering co-investment yeah. rights. So, you know, I'm curious as we have so many economists now forecasting an imminent recession somewhere on the horizon, you know, how do you expect that's going to impact co-investment activity, if at all? Good question. Um, I guess since we haven't had a downturn in a long time, uh, the, data, the data that we can look at makes it won't really tell us much. Um, I, I guess what we believe is that despite that increased appetite for co-invest by, by many LPs, the reality is that it continues to be that relatively few LPs are truly set up to, to execute on co-investment deal flow. And, and what we hear from RGPs is that, that do offer co-invest, they're doing it with a relatively small subset of, of, of their LPs, despite many more LPs around the table raising their raising their hands and, and showing interest in that, in that co-investment deal flow. So in a downturn... Um, I think two things would stand to reason. You know, I think first, many investors will likely be facing distress elsewhere in their portfolios. And as a result, they're, they're likely to quickly become over-allocated to private equity as, as the rest of their portfolio just grows smaller. Um, I think the second point is that it, 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 would, it feels reasonable to think that the co-invest deal flow that, that individuals or groups are going to see is going to have some element of distress or just lower relative growth to where those businesses uh, had, had been before. So against this, I think it would stand to reason that many co-investments that LPC uh, are not necessarily going to be co-investments that they're, they're going to be nearly as, as likely to act on in, in a market that, that's going through some type of, of correction. But I think it's interesting to see how that plays out, right? Because I think if you're an LP that has a team in place um, that's ready to underwrite these, these kind of messier opportunities, um, there's definitely going to be a relative value arbitrage that we haven't seen in, in quite some time. Hmm. And then speaking more generally, you know, it, on, this, on the topic of an oncoming recession, what should LPs be doing to prepare for the end of the economic cycle? Yeah, um, stay the course. Yeah. Um, I, I think if the recent period has taught us anything, we, we kind of talked about calling the top of the market. Um, it's that trying to time the market is, is, a, is a fool's errand, especially in, in private equity specifically. Um, had one sat out this period that we're talking about, they would have missed out on a tremendous period of, of, of strong, strong returns. So from our perspective, you know, we think the best thing that LPs can do, and, and, and we practice this, um, is continue to allocate you know, relatively consistently across vintage years uh, and really build a well-diversified portfolio that's positioned to take advantage um, of both kind of growth opportunities and, and, and value and more distressed opportunities. Well, Whit, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Yeah, definitely, Katie. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Middle Market Growth Conversations. Subscribe to the podcast in Apple, SoundCloud, or Google Play, where you can listen to past episodes and hear the next episode in two weeks. While you're there, we'd love if you could rate the show and leave a review to help other listeners find out about us. After you've rated the podcast, visit our website, middlemarketgrowth.org, to read the latest issue of our magazine and web-exclusive content highlighting middle market companies and M&A.